you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the law had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maseah on his right hand. And Pediah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbanadah, Zechariah, and Meshullam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maseah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. A word from Hoyts that we need to be out in about five minutes because there's been a double booking. Top Gun showing, we're all allowed to stay, which is cool, but we have to leave and finish the service soon. Just kidding. (laughs) Punked. Love it. You should have seen Jess's face. She's service managing this morning. Didn't cope very well with that, but that's okay. I should have told you that was coming. I apologise, Jess. Uh, The point of that, not the most sophisticated prank I've ever pulled, I'll be honest. I once put beanbag balls in a friend's car, and it's the gift that keeps giving because it takes hours to clean, but then for the next three months, every time they turn on the air conditioner... More beanbag balls appear. It's fantastic. Anyway, the reason I would do that to you 
is because I would love to know what do you think we should spend those five minutes on? If we really did only have five minutes left in our service, what should we do with them? Maybe we should pray. Maybe get on our knees, pray for ourselves, for one another, and for the world. Maybe it's worth investing the time flagging stuff we have coming up in the life of our church during the week because we don't have much time, so let's point to the other gatherings we have going on. Maybe we should just sing, lift the roof off in God's praises. Maybe we could even sneak in a cheeky little sermon. What do we do? What should be the last thing left standing in one of our church services? Well, this morning we're in Nehemiah chapter 8, and as we look at this text, I reckon it puts forward a pretty compelling argument for something that we maybe would have left off the list. When we get to Nehemiah 8, everything is coming up Israel. The journey we've been on over the last weeks is there. They've arrived. The project they began back in Ezra chapter 1 is finally complete. The temple rebuilt. The city rebuilt. The wall around the city rebuilt. God's people have left exile. They've come home and they've finished the rebuild. It is mission accomplished for so long. The life of this community has been leading towards this moment for so long. You as an Israelite have been praying and hoping and working towards this day. And it's here. So what do we do now? Housewarming party. Of course you do. You throw a massive celebration as you move into your new home. Seven days this festival lasts, which might make it the world's longest recorded housewarming party. And all the people are there and it's a huge celebration. But this party tells us something pretty important too. Because it's not just houseplants and punch. This party reveals their priorities as a people. Just days after the project is finished, when everything is looking up, the way that God's people choose to proceed, the way that they celebrate, the things they give their time and attention and energy to at the outset of this new season of their life is deeply instructive. So as we look closely at this scene in Nehemiah, Chapter 8, we're going to ask a few questions. What, who, where, how, and why? I call it the Cluedo approach to Scripture. What did they do? Who did it? How did it happen? Where were they at the time? And why should we care? Does that sound all right? Good. Nate's with me. This is going to be a ball. We are diving straight in. Verse 1 with the what Question. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the law had commanded Israel. Just picture the scene for a second. Everybody, everyone is gathered in the square. They've still got dirt from the build under their fingernails, but the job's done. Now here they stand shoulder to shoulder, hustling and and bustling, craning their necks to see towards the front. And then the chant starts from somewhere in the back of the crowd. We want Ezra. We want Ezra, everybody. We want Ezra. We want Ezra. That was way more exciting in my head. That's okay. We We will get there. Remember Ezra, the Old Testament scholar from the book of Ezra? He hasn't made a single appearance in the book of Nehemiah, by the way. He's almost been forgotten about, but here he's summoned like a rock star for an encore. 
A friend of mine and yours is Andy Judd, and he happens to be, like Ezra, an Old Testament scholar. So I texted him this week and just wanted to check if this was normal. I said, in the passage this week, Ezra seems to get welcomed like a rock star, rock star doing an encore. Is that a common experience for all Old Testament scholars? And he said, ha ha, only at trivia night. <laughs> to which I replied, you can bet that's going on the big screen. They obviously really want Ezra. It deeply matters to them that he's there. Such is their excitement that they demand he comes. But what do they want him for? It's in verse 1. They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, brought, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it. Facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women, those who could understand, the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Remember, we're asking the what question, what's happening? And the answer is very straightforward. For six hours, Ezra reads to them. They build him a wooden stand to read from. It's probably the first pulpit in recorded history. And they listen to him read for six hours. They listen intently as he reads the book of the law of Moses. It's also called the Torah, or we might know it as the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's way too long for him to have read it all in these six hours, so he's probably just reading bits and excerpts and highlights. But, But to us, even if it is highlights, this might seem like an interesting choice of reading material, right? This is the history of their people. And it's a bit puzzling because the world of Adam and Eve and Abraham and Moses for us feels, feels a world away. It's just so far removed. But not for them. Because for the people there that day, this story means so much more to them than it does to us. Because this is their story in so many ways. It's the tale of where they've come from who they are, how they became a nation, how they got here. This book is their Gettysburg Address, their Constitution, their Declaration of Independence, and their Bill of Rights, all rolled into one. And it's more than that. Because at the very heart of this story is a rescue mission. We saw it when we tracked through Exodus a while back. This story at its very heart is about a God who brings his people out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea and into the promised land. This is a story of a God who keeps his promises. This is a story of a God who saves. So of course you'd read this here now. Think about it. Imagine you're an Israelite. As you hear the story of your people, as you hear the story of a God who saves, who takes his people out of slavery and into the promised land, and then as you think about where you've been not that long ago, your experience of exile in Babylon, the time when you and your people were without a home and without a hope, And now here you are, surrounded by rebuilt walls, 
the new temple on the horizon. And it occurs to you as you hear this story, my God, he's done it again. He's done it again. He's done exactly what he said he'd do. He's been faithful. He's kept his promises. He's brought us into the land he has for us. He has rescued us. And so, of course, Ezra stands and reads to retell the story of rescue. Of course, they read this here now because it's their story too. That's the what question. What do they do? They retell the story of rescue. What about the who? Who's there? All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded him. All the people. That that phrase occurs 11 times in this chapter, all the people, which suggests the author really, really, really wants us to know it really is everyone. It's not just the leaders, it's not just the old, it's not just the keen beans, it's all the people. But we get an even more detailed description of who's there in verse 2. Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. The men and women and all who could understand, which most commentators agree means the children. The young people of this community, anyone with a chance to wrap their head around this story is part of this massive family moment. And if you know your Old Testament well, you'll know this is exactly what they're supposed to do with this story. Deuteronomy 31, Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, which is exactly the time of year it is in Nehemiah 8, by the way. When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before Israel in all their hearing. You can see the parallels, right? It's that time of year in the place God has for them. So they're supposed to read, but Moses goes on, assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. Be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land you're going over the Jordan to possess. Hear it, read it, do it, and include the kids, Moses says. Here's the point. God doesn't just deal with grown-ups. We see it in the Gospels when Jesus was teaching and healing one day and some people brought their children to Jesus. And a bunch of the crowd panicked. They said, oh, I don't know about that. This is maybe more of a, an adult thing that you need to be this high to kind of receive healing from the king of the universe. So why don't you just shuffle off or let mom and dad do their thing? And Jesus says, no. No, let the little children come. Because the kingdom of God belongs to ones like these. That wasn't new to him. That's not his idea. It's the way he's always been. It's the way God has always been. He doesn't just deal with grown-ups. In Deuteronomy, in Nehemiah, this is a children's story. Every bit as much as it's for the adults in the room. 
Because God doesn't just deal with grown-ups. That's why what's happening down the ramp in City Kids is so important. It's every bit as important as what we do in this room. Deb and the team are down there using every means they can to retell the story of rescue to the young people of our church family. Whether it's art or talks or a Bible study or songs or games, they're doing whatever they can to point them to Jesus. I remember a couple of months ago, it was Easter, and I was preaching here on Good Friday. It was just a wonderful time together, but I was exhausted at the end. After a couple of long services, all I could muster up was the energy to go and have a big nap for the glory of God. That's what I felt like. So I got home. That was my plan, but my three-year-old Edie got in the way. I said, Daddy, look at this. <sighs> okay. What is it? And she made me sit down on the couch. She sat on my lap. And she showed me the City Kids booklet that she'd got that day. She told me what they'd learnt. These are the robbers. This is Jesus. And Jesus died on the cross because he loves us. And all the people were sad. They went to the tomb and the angels came and said... He's not here. And then after three days, his father raised him back to life. I realized in my exhaustion, she's preaching to me. And the clarity with which she understood these things, the, the excitement she had about the good news of Good Friday, her determination to tell anybody who would listen, You better believe there's good gospel ministry happening down the ramp. God is profoundly at work in the young people of our church. And so it should be, because this is a message for all who can understand. The kingdom belongs to the little ones. And it's worth reflecting, as a church community, how are we going, loving and serving our young people? We've said that's going to be one of our significant strategic priorities to equip the next generation. How are we going? I'm not just talking about our staffing or our kids program and kids leaders, though that is a big part of it. I'm wondering, what are you doing about it? What will that look like for you? If you are a parent and God has given you children to steward and care for, how are you going putting some thought and energy and prayer into their discipleship? If you're not someone who has children, you better believe it takes a village to raise a kid in the Lord. We're all part of this family together. So, so I want to ask to all of us, are there any young people in your orbit that you're trying to shepherd towards Jesus? Are you speaking to any of our young people about the things of God? Maybe you don't have an opportunity and that's okay, but are there any young people on your prayer list? I get that this may not come very naturally to a lot of us, so, so I want to recommend that we all start here. Learn the name of somebody younger than 18 at our church. And then start praying. That's it. 
Just learn a name and start praying. Connect with the parents and say, hey, I'm on your side here. We're in this together as a big family. Because God doesn't just deal with the grown-ups. The people of God retell their story of rescue. That's the what. They do it amongst every generation. That's the who. So now we come to the how. Verse 7. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hadiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jezebad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. The Levites here, they've got a particular role, which as far as we know, is to wander through the crowds, explaining stuff to people who need it. They give the sense of the reading, meaning they try and make this as clear as possible. In verse 13, some of the leaders even come back the next day for some further study so they can go back to their communities and explain it some more and unpack the good news of the first five books of the Bible, the story of rescue that this people holds on to. Why? Well, because it matters very deeply that you understand what's being read. It matters to them and it should matter to us. In some religious traditions, that's not that important. It's not uncommon for the Bible reading or the scripture, whatever that book might be, to be read in a foreign language. Latin, because it seems more esteemed, or or, or to be read in very, very, very old and hard to understand English. But that's not here because we don't read the words of God as a ritual. We're actually trying to get it. We don't read the words of God to have them wash over us like some sort of spiritual white noise. We genuinely believe God speaks to us through the Bible. So we do everything we can to understand what he's saying. That's why we have Bibles in English. It's why we have sermons. It's why we have gospel communities during the week. It's why we have city kids lessons to make it as clear as possible. It's fair to say my preaching is probably too verbose for some of the children, partly because I use words like verbose, but not so down there. Clarity is the goal because understanding matters because we actually think God speaks to us through the Bible. If an angel kind of just walked in now and had a message from God, I reckon we'd listen pretty closely, don't you? If it burst through the screen with loud trumpets and told us something God wanted us to know, we'd lean forward. What we have in the pages of Scripture is an even more direct communication from God than that. God himself speaks to us through the Bible. So, of course... We'd lean in to listen. It matters that the word is understood. So I want to encourage you, try and encourage understanding 
in yourself and the people around you, whether it's by reading good books or even making the most of coffee downstairs. Hey, Dave didn't make any sense today. Walk me through it. Let's be the conversationalists who encourage understanding because we think God speaks to us. That's part of the how. They hear God speak and they seek to understand. But it goes on in verse 5. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. They bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The word of God understood leads his people to praise him. Because God speaks good news. This is a story of a God who keeps his promises and saves his people. This is a story of our God who loves us far more than we could ever imagine or deserve. And so when it's heard and understood, it does something in the hearer. It leads them to praise God. God in himself is perfect. And so knowing him rightly is always good news. If you don't understand it, you're missing out because God is perfect. If you misunderstand it, you're missing out because God is perfect. Anything else falls short. And so the word of God rightly understood is always good news. So the people read the word, they seek to understand it, and they respond in praise and worship. That's the how. So we've got what? Reading the word, who, all the generations, how, with understanding and praise. What about the where? And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. I feel like that didn't quite capture you like it should, right? Every Monday morning, I come to a staff meeting and I'm very excited about who's won the golf tournament that weekend. I get the same response you just gave me. (laughs) Britt just very politely listens and then tries to say, "Why, why does that matter? Why is it cool that Phil Mickelson won again? This is like that. Here's why this is cool that they meet at the Watergate, right? Because of what it's not... You might know nothing about the Watergate. That's fine. But here's what you need to know. It's not the temple. In this moment of their life together, they open the word and they don't do it at the temple. The temple, which is the religious center of their life. The the temple, which they've just worked so hard to rebuild. Now, this is much more like the town square. This is not St. Paul's Cathedral. This is Fed Square. Instead, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that the word of God is for the people of God everywhere. In every sphere of life. The story of salvation is not confined to the walls of religious buildings. Now, that's great news for us as the cinema church, isn't it? 
You read the Old Testament, there is nothing in there about cup holders and candy bars when it comes to constructing your place of worship. But I like that we meet here because it's central to the city. As if to say, this is for everyone. This is for everywhere. This is for every sphere. This word of God, this good news. What a shame to keep it stuck in churches. It should absolutely shape the way that we worship and gather together, but it should shape our streets and our homes and our shopping centers and our workplaces and our nation. I know that not everyone at your school or your workplace believes the Bible, but you had better believe the Bible makes a difference to the way that you study, the way you act in staff meetings, the way you conduct yourself on social media. It shapes everything about you. Not just the way we pray and sing together on Sundays, but everything about your Monday through the week. The word is central everywhere. That's why they're at the Watergate. In fact, from around this time, God's people got a bit of a nickname for themselves. They weren't people of the building. They weren't people of the sacrifices. They weren't, they weren't anything like that. They became the people of the book. That's how they were known, the people of the book. And so as they move into their city, it's so clear they're down with that. The building project is complete. The foundation of the city will not be the fresh walls, though. Their hope is not in the new temple. It's the words of God working in his people. And so it is for us. I have a friend who became a Christian uh, around 20 years of age. And for the first few months, she was terrified to go to church. She became a Christian and went to church immediately, really enjoyed it. So it wasn't like the people or the weirdness of it all. It was because she knew every Sunday she'd go to church and they'd unpack the Bible. And every Sunday she was going to find something else she needed to do differently. Now, over time, she came to love that. She now works in full-time ministry explaining the Bible to other people. But for a while... Her determination to do whatever it said made her a little nervous to turn up each week. Now, the longer she went on, the more she realized there's so much life to be found in the way Jesus calls us to live. It's only good stuff he calls us to. So she doesn't have that feeling anymore. But I've got to say there's something really nice about that initial experience, isn't there? Something of a rebuke to me that she would turn up to church and expect to change because God speaks to her. Can I say the same about me? If the Bible called me to change, would I be super willing to do it? Is that a regular experience of my life? I hope so. Whether you've been a Christian for two weeks or 40 years, I hope so. Because the word of God is central to all of our lives. So that's the what, the who, the where, and the how. Now we come to the why question. Why should we care about Nehemiah chapter 8? Now, from time to time, I really like a good surprise ending. 
I love it in my movies with the big reveal. I like the key change at the end of a song that nobody saw coming. I like the super twist with only a few pages left in the novel. And I like them in sermons too. The twist ending, no one saw coming. How how you do the big reveal and then it all comes together. Bam, bombshell revelation at the end. So City on a Hill, this is not one of those sermons. There are no surprises left. Let's just be people of the book. Throughout this passage, the word of God is central to the people of God, all of them. This is where the passage is headed. It's how they start. It's how they shape their life. They hear it. They understand it. And they respond to it with worship and praise. So here's my big ending. Let's do that. We should care about this story. Because it's like our story. We too have the words of God. But there's one big difference between their story and our story, and it's this. Our story's better. Our story's even better than theirs because our story is more than one where God has saved us from exile. He saved us from ourselves. Our enemies were not Egypt or Babylon. Our enemies are sin and death and evil. And they're all problems that God has fixed. All things that God has saved us from in Christ. God has kept all of his promises. And now we know love and life and hope through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So as the band comes up, I want to humbly suggest that if we did only have five minutes left, Maybe we should read the Bible together. Maybe we should just open the pages of Scripture and read. Preferably Graham Chiswell would do it. Got a great reading voice. But whoever does it, let's open the Bible and retell the story of salvation. Let's head out for coffee afterwards and explain it to each other. Let's worship God through the week in the way that we listen and understand and praise him and obey him. But let's make the words of God our foundation. Jesus said, whoever does, whoever hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built their house on a rock. Even when the wind and the waves came, the house still stood. The words of God are a firm foundation for our lives, individually and our lives together. So sitting on a hill, let's be people of the book. And actually, let's do it right now. We're going to do something a little different. We're going to try and relive Nehemiah 8 a little bit. So the city kids are going to join us for this next bit. I'm told that they've spent the morning learning that God loves to gather his people. So we're going to help them apply that as we all gather together. And then 
we're going to read from the Bible. Not all of it. Just a few short passages. And then we're going to respond in praise. Does that sound okay? So if I could invite our readers up, what we're going to do is have a few readings. And at the end of each reading, we're going to do something very Anglican and very old. It's not what old people do. It's just a thing that's been around for a long time. We're going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and all of God's people will respond, thanks be to God. Does that sound all right? Great. So I want to encourage us, City on a Hill, let's be people of the book, and let's stand together. Okay, the first reading is from Romans 5, verses 6 to 11. Sorry, from verses 6 to 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for the righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God showed His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the word of the Lord. Ephesians 2, 4-10 But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have external life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.